Welcome to Coffee House. We have changed the name. It's for a couple of reasons. It's a new year, new decade. We are getting started on a brand new trajectory as a show, as a country, as a civilization, as a species. So I wanted something a little more modern, something I liked looking at, <laughs> the words themselves that I like looking at. Plus, this actually has a lot of significance to me. And hell, I'll, I'll explain it. I'll just be transparent about that. So coffee is spelled K-A-W. The K-A-W is uh, in reference to the noise that a bird makes, specifically a crow, which has always been uh, symbolic to me since I was a kid of death. <laughs> it just reminded me to get going. So it's something that sticks with me whenever I see it. And then there is the fee in coffee, F-E-E. Which reminds me of the phrase fee-fi-fo-fum, the beginning of Jack and the Beanstalk, which goes on to say, I smell the blood of an Englishman, and I recently learned, after having my DNA sequence, that I'm primarily English. So there's a little something there. Plus, it reminds me of one of my favorite lines in English from Julius Caesar, where he writes the phrase, bestride the narrow world like a colossus. Which makes me think of a giant bestriding the narrow world. And then House, H-A-U-S, is uh, a reminder of Funhouse, which is a YouTube comedy variety show <laughs> that is really creative, and they make me laugh. I mean, now they don't have much going on because of they're in California, but it reminds me that you have to, you have to laugh at things, and yourself, no matter how serious you want to be. The reality is we have a brief time, and you can take it seriously, but you can't take it all, always, too seriously, so... For the first book that we're going to do to kick off this whole new everything, I did Game of Thrones, A Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire. Now, as far as I understand it, the actual whole series is called A Song of Ice and Fire, and Game of Thrones is was popularized by the TV show, but it just seems to be the direction that our civilization is taking, that our country at least has taken already. So I figure since that's the era that we're stepping into, it's good to start off right here. And the TV show was actually, I had never read the book, or any of the books, and the TV show I was introduced to by my former partner. We watched the entire thing beginning and end, and then we watched the end of it, <laughs> season 8, which was a tragic, abortive effort that ended something that was really special. So it has some special significance to me in that way. <laughs> but to get into the book... So it's relatively long, and I, I think there are, what, there are like six or seven books in total, which is damned impressive given how much detail is in these books. But of course, the way we do this is we go through the content a bit, do some analysis, and uh, since it's fiction, we do some quotes out of it to get an idea of the writing style. But just by way of introduction, of course, it's written by George R.R. R. Martin. I think he was born, his name, he only had one R, but then he had one of the other R's later because he liked J.R.R. Tolkien so much or something like that. I don't know if that, that's the reason, to be honest, but I know he was influenced. He said he was influenced by Tolkien. He began the first volume in 1991 and published it in 1996. A good five years into that first volume. 
And he is currently, I think, 72 is what I saw, which is scary. 72 is up there. And the final book, I know it's so callous for everybody to be clamoring for him to get this thing done before he goes kaput. But just given all the detail in it, it, it would be great to see that. Of course, he needs to do what's best for him. And we've, we're already pretty damn lucky to have all the storytelling he's given so far. But we will get into that. <laughs> So the content of it. Now, if people haven't seen the show or read the book, there are going to be minor spoilers as we go along here. But the contents, most people will be familiar with. You know, you've got the characters. The Starks are kind of the focal point of the show. And there's King's Landing and the Lannisters, who are the ones that have the coin. They have the money and lend to everybody. And they're shifty bastards. Then there's the king, Robert Baratheon, who is betrothed to Cersei Lannister, who's amazing. Especially in the show. I love Lena Headey in that show. As a, so they're betrothed as a kind of alliance. There's Joffrey, the prince. There is Arya and Sansa and the father, Eddard. And the brothers, Bran and John, who's a bastard. Not, he's a dick, he's, he's an actual bastard. And who's the other one, Rob? Yeah, Rob's the other one. And Catelyn, the mother. But so you've got all of these characters, and all of them interweave and intertwine and do all sorts of different things. And the Lannisters is Jaime, along with Cersei and Tyrion. And then characters not directly tied to those two families. Uh, like, what's his name, Varys? Varys? And uh, Littlefinger. Lord Baelish, yeah, uh, all sorts of good stuff, good characters. And Daenerys, of course, yes, uh, often the other lands. So uh, having talked about specifically the characters, the easy-to-identify characters, another character, of course, is the world itself. And it really is layered on and built well. It's not something that is easy to do at all period, is build a world this complex and intertwined. But the thing that struck me immediately as I'm reading this thing is how much history is already built in. So you have whatever plot and characters and things that are established presently. So you have the present of these are the things that are happening. But each one of them has so much history that's already built into what they are and what they've done and what's happened in the world. That is the most fantastic thing about it. I mean, with the world itself, you've got this uh, Winter's Coming mantra from the Starks and everything that has built into it. You've got the Kingslayer and what he did and the Mad King and Daenerys and her relationship to wanting to regain the throne. And well, even before that, her brother and his position in all this and Baratheon, Robert Baratheon being wedded to Cersei Lannister and how that has a built-in history to it. And there's a whole bunch of talk as you go through. There's a whole bunch of talk of the mythology behind all of these people as well. And I enjoyed that mythology even more than kind of the more fanciful stuff that would come up. You know, I mean, obviously dragons are awesome and you can't go wrong with dragons in general, but them talking about different wars and what happened to different people and this family member and that family member and this previous marriage and that previous romance and who wanted what back when and all that stuff. There's so much already just built in backdating all of the history of this world that it just feels so grounded and so easy to follow because you have something to tether on to as you're going through it. You know, you have something to hold on to. So then you've got the plot. I mean, the plot is built on a bunch of the ideas, like court intrigue, 
you know, it's relatively basic structure where you have people who are vying for power and all of their competitive advantages and disadvantages and where they win and they lose and all that sort of thing. Except in addition to that, which is plain court intrigue, they have the authors built into these characters, you know, distinctive personalities that will get them, get them into trouble or out of trouble rather than just having it being generic court stuff where it's like oh and we have an alliance with you and i have an alliance with you and i'm marrying this person to do this and all that stuff there's a lot of character driven decisions that have consequences as you go through it and that's that's the big thing of course when it comes to game of thrones is that in writing this plot like you could watch a million movies in a row and a million movies in a row you might see the same thing where when a character makes a bad decision there's not a real consequence and in Game of Thrones, that is one thing that it does so exceptionally well. Of course, that's what people remember it for, but not for kind of the underlying meta idea of going against your natural inclination as a writer to make things happen in the way that you want them to happen for your protagonist. People just remember, oh, that thing was surprising or the other thing was surprising. But from a plot perspective, being able to ensure that you have actual consequences for character-driven decisions, I mean, that is ballsy writing. <laughs> that is really awesome writing to be able to do that and consistently do that. And you have to wonder as they go through, you know, there are different decisions that are made that you could wonder, was that a good decision? Was that a bad decision? <laughs> would that, the thing that eventually happened, would that have happened regardless of whether they made that decision or did it cause it? And there are real consequences. I, I remember just being surprised that there was a willingness to kill off a direwolf so early. I mean, obviously minor spoilers, like I said, but that was something that was really surprising plot wise, because it's something that's easy to hold on to and just say that, okay, well, these are cool things. We're going to hold on to these cool things <laughs> for the duration of the story. And we might put them in danger or whatever, but they're going to be fine because they're cool dogs. So who's going to do anything about that? To have real consequences in that moment and have them be the result of a character-driven choice. That's what's special about the storytelling in those moments. And of course, you've got all the magic stuff around this, and that's fine because it offers another level that you can kind of take back things that would otherwise just be bounded by reality. And as long as you trickle it in and it doesn't become this all-encompassing thing where you can use magic to do anything that you want it to do, then it's perfectly fine. <laughs> Anyway, I'm not going to go beat by beat through plot points or anything like that. I'm going to move into the analysis and then we'll do some quotes and see where we are. So the writing itself, it's effective. It accomplishes what it needs to accomplish. It's not great literature or anything like that. There are no grand ideas about philosophy or human nature or anything like that that comes out of it, a la some of the great writers that we've already seen, like Dostoevsky, or even to kind of a more limited extent, Hemingway or somebody like that. This is cream of the crop of literary fast food. So it would be like the, I don't know, the Five Guys or the Chick-fil-A of literature, because it's really it's about the plot it's about the characters it's about enjoying that and at least challenging some of the conventions of storytelling which it does and does very well but it's not really about pushing the bounds of the medium or using language in a way that it's never been used before or anything like that 
So, having said that, so many good things about the world. There are very strong locations. I mean, the locations are so vibrant and used so well. The locations are distinct. You know, you can picture Winterfell. You can, and that's not just because there's a show of it so you can see it or anything like that. But you have a real sense of geography, of a real sense of this place is distinct from that other place. And I don't think I brought this up yet, but this is an extremely important point here. And I thought I made notes specifically about how I was going to talk about this. Oh, yeah, I did. No, it's later. Okay, when I talk about pacing. But it's related to locations, too. So what I'm going to talk about is that in the locations, the writer makes sure to use what's around the character. That's something that you'll see when you watch a, a great movie from a great director. Great directors will make sure, and even just pretty good directors, I think this came up in the X-Men movies, actually. Because Brian Singer, one thing that he did in the early X-Men movies was he made sure to use an environment if he had two characters talking in that environment, rather than just having them talk. And you can watch it. You can watch the ones that Brian Singer directed and watch ones that he didn't direct. And you can see that Brian Singer makes a point to make sure that they do something in that location that's specific to that location. But just like in, in this book, the writer tries to make sure that there's something of particular import in that location for the conversation that's happening. Which is an excellent rule of thumb to make sure that you're more tethered to what's going on and where you are and the geography. And it's more distinctive in your mind rather than just two people talking here, two people talking there. That's one thing I think in Dostoevsky that's actually something that I had. It always just seemed like two people were talking in some random place and it didn't matter where it was. But so, for examples, you have, like, when he's talking to the maester or whatever, John, I think, is talking to him, and you, you have the parrot. And the parrot keeps squawking up and saying things. It just, it adds a different dynamic to the situation so that it's more than just two people talking. But other ones are like when Tyrion is talking to his father, and they're just, they're talking about the, what's going on, what they're going to do, and the upcoming battle, and that kind of a thing. Tyrion's eating, and he's, so he's going up, and he's, he's taking this to eat, and he's taking that to eat. He's got a charcuterie board, or something like that, and so it just, it adds some kind of distinctive aspect to that area, so that you, you get something out of it, and it's not just two people talking. Or even just Arya and Needle or Arya and Fencing or whatever. Something else is happening that makes it more distinctive than just two people talking. But that leads into the fact that it has really good pacing. There are only a couple of times where it felt like it lulled to me, where I wasn't really interested in what was happening. Ironically, one of them was when Jon was being attacked by the White Walker. For some reason, it just felt like a really big lull, and I didn't care. And it could have had a lot to do with the fact that we kind of know what zombies are and what they're going to do. We already ha have that built in our brain, so you just kind of wait for it to be described and try to get past it. But there were a couple of conversations where I was just disinterested. I think I tuned... Yeah, there was one I tuned out when they were talking about Rob getting married to the daughter of that one guy, and, and I think that one guy is very important <laughs> and will come up later, so it was important to establish this agreement at this point and this early, which is awesome. But I think I, I was completely tuned out until I realized who it was and how that was going to come back into play later, but even there, I was just kind of bored with it, and they tried to create some kind of a dy dynamic there, but it didn't really work, and so, anyway, but it, most of the time, I was just, I was interested in the conversations. There were a lot of really fun conversations throughout that keep your interest and it's not easy to write dialogue you know extensive dialogue for people to be interested in so it was nice to see that most of the time and that was
was something that was definitely lost in the last season of the show. And then finally, oh, the characters themselves. So the characters themselves, now I know people kind of quickly latched on, and that might have had a lot to do with the perfect casting of virtually everybody in that show. I can't think of anybody that was just wrong or miscast or anything like that. It just seemed like everybody really embodied whatever character pretty much perfectly from the ground up. Bran was a little weird when he got older. But I don't know what that was about. But other than that, I mean, it seemed like pretty much everybody fit perfectly. But the characters themselves, they're not actually very complex characters. They're actually character archetypes, basic cliche characters that are kind of rounded out at the edges. So you have something like Arya is the tomboy. Uh, the tomboy girl character. Sansa is the girly girl character who likes to wear dresses and wants to be a princess. Jon is the pure savior character. Rob is the hero character. And to some degree, obviously, especially with Rob, it's the point to make him the pure hero characters. But still, it's it's part of a, a cliche or a simple archetype that you see in a lot of different stories. And then Joffrey is the over-the-top evil character and Catelyn can fall into being a doting mother kind of a character. And so these things, they kind of fit a lot of the really basic stereotypes of that kind of a character, but they do have added edges, you know, rounding off for each one of these. So it makes them much more easily accessible and likable. I mean, because you could see it that Arya, she's the tomboy who doesn't want to fit into the basic gender role of the era that she's being forced into, and you can see her fighting against that but still there's a little extra enough extra that you see her as Arya as opposed to just seeing her as that tomboy archetype or cliche but it's still not to the complexity level that you would see in really great literature where they don't really fit into any of those archetypes and they have so many ins and outs and positives and negatives and all sorts of other things that you wouldn't even think of placing them in one of those archetypes. And then, like I said, of course, the world itself is a character, and that's just a beautiful character. I have virtually no complaints about how complex the world is, because it really fits the the atmosphere, the themes, the ideas, all that stuff really fits within this world, and it has so many interwoven parts that are dependent on each other. I just, I love all of that, and how it all fits together. It's, it's a beautiful thing. And like I said, the best thing about it is the built-in history that's already there from the beginning. It gives it such deep roots that it's so easy to latch onto and really enjoy it. So to go into some quotes so we can get some uh, writing style here. Night gathers, and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the fire that burns against cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch. For this night and all the nights to come. End quote. So, of course, that is the statement, the pledge. Those are the words that's taking the black. And there's some good stuff in there. You know, there's uh, a lot of language that seems like it fits really well. It's creative. It's fun. It makes sense. All that stuff. Quote, swift as a deer, quiet as a shadow, fear cuts deeper than swords, quick as a snake, calm as still water. End quote. So a lot of times there are just kind of uh, little fun phrases that come up and some other times there's just kind of uh, generic chunks of writing that get a little tedious. But here's one I liked. It's uh, a conversation between Littlefinger and Varys. 
Baelish. The realm, do you know what the realm is? It's the thousand blades of Aegon's enemies, a story we agree to tell each other over and over until we forget that it's a lie. Varys. But what do we have left once we abandon the lie? Chaos? A gaping pit waiting to swallow us all? Baelish. Chaos isn't a pit. Chaos is a ladder. Many who try to climb it fail and never get to try again. The fall breaks them, and some are given a chance to climb. They refuse. They cling to the realm or the gods or love. Illusions. Only the ladder is real. The climb is all there is. End quote. It's those co- I really like Baelish. I think he's a really good character. Varys has his moments too, but I think this is just really fun to read. It's fun to see. It's fun to have characters who think like this. And there are a number of kind of surprisingly deft moments when it comes to this kind of writing and this kind of talk where it's this packed in wisdom, you know, like Cersei gets the line about when you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die or something like that, which is fantastic. I mean, it embodies the entire thing. It's a fun thing. It's quotable. Just lovely stuff. So that's that's the first book of A Song of Ice and Fire. And I don't know if I read the rest of them, I don't know if I'll go more deeply into the plot to really talk about what happens. Since I, in this, I got to talk about kind of the background of it and the analysis of the book and the writing style and all that. Once that's done, and I've gone through the character stuff and all that, then maybe we talk specifically about plot points and what made sense and what didn't or what was good and what was not. But it was it was a fun read, and I think it's an apt way to start off this decade, which should be the most interesting in history. But that's it. That's it from Coffee House. And I will hopefully see you on the next one. We've got some very good stuff, bit controversial stuff coming up really soon here. And hopefully we can have some excellent conversations about it. All right. Have a good one. (laughs) 